Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. This is Mike Fader, and uh, this is The Turning Point. We're here every Monday at 4 p.m., and there are podcasts available afterwards. Uh, So Donald Trump continues his, I don't know, campaign. Is that the right word? He continues like a runaway train or sort of a Frankenstein monster that got out of control. And um, as you can see by reading a lot of articles in the paper, or watching TV, or however you get your information, that a lot of the people in the Republican Party are trying to either disavow him completely, or control him, or maybe come up with another candidate. And today uh, we have uh, somebody with us who's written an article, a recent article on Truthout online, called Blowback, Donald Trump is the Price We Pay for the War on Terror. And um, it's Mike Lofgren who's with us. Hiya. Hello? Do we have our guest? 
We do indeed. Good oh, to be there. here. Okay. Mike Lofgren. <laughs> okay, Mike Lofgren. And he's a former congressional staff member who served on the House and Senate Budget Committees. His new book, The Deep State, The Fall of the Constitution and the Rise of a Shadow Government, appeared this past January. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Uh, yes. It's basically a result of my observations over the years, particularly since 9-11, that elected officials, our constitutional government, our formal government, wasn't really in charge, that regardless of whether you have uh, George Bush or Barack Obama, who campaigned against him and his policies on the war and terror, uh, the war on terror pretty much takes the same outlines, mm. because behind these people, there's a huge and mostly invisible bureaucracy that runs according to its own uh, compass heading, if you will, regardless of who is in power. Mm. I think <clears throat> more and more people become aware of that uh, as time goes on, although I wish uh, an even widening group of people would uh, would become aware of it, but it uh, doesn't seem that way. But let, let's get into your article. The title of the article is uh, Blowback, Donald Trump is the Price We Pay for the War on Terror. And um, you start off with a certain quote, which kind of sets the tone for the rest of the, um, for the article, and I'll, I'll just read it real quick. The people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That, that is easy. All you have to do is tell them they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same way in any country, and that's by Hermann Goering uh, from uh, an interview in 1946, which kind of says it all. But uh, let us let us uh, start off. You, I mean, you picked that quote on purpose, right? Oh, absolutely. There was no happenstance about it, because we see this thing happening over and over again in history, and we're seeing it. We are seeing it happen now in our country. Uh, 9-11 and the invasion of Iraq and the war on terror uh, released demons in the American psyche. At first, I didn't think that the public was really reacting. They were sort of apathetic to things that you would think would get them bent out of shape. Uh, George Bush, after totally botching, ignoring the August 6th uh, presidential daily brief in 2001, he basically sat on his butt mm. for a month in Crawford, Texas, and did precisely nothing. He didn't alert the FAA. Uh, the Border Patrol, the FBI, the CIA, he did precisely nothing. And then when the deed occurred, for which he could have been impeached for nonfeasance, in other words, non-performance in his constitutional role as commander-in-chief, mm -hmm. then he gets the bright idea to invade the wrong country. And people, so it seems, went along with this. And I thought people were apathetic um, after the 2008 uh, financial meltdown. Mm -hmm. uh, it was caused by sort of the same elements that control our government, just in a financial way rather than a military way. 
Now I think we're paying that debt. The chickens have come home to roost. It's unhinged. People didn't get wiser. It just unhinged them. Well, Ed, you say, you know, you start off saying that the war on terror, uh, trillions of dollars have been spent on this war on terror, and yet the, the government, who has been spending this money all the time, is telling us we're more in danger than ever. And um, uh, what your point is in the beginning of the article and throughout the article is that the United States government deliberately has instilled dread in the population uh, about terrorism all the time, to the point where, for instance, in the Republican primary recently in South Carolina, when they asked people what the main issue they were concerned about, and this is a place, you know, where people are without jobs, you know, without homes. I mean, everything is going wrong, uh, you name it, uh, domestically. But they named terrorism, above all, as their main concern. And um, uh, this is, this is, in other words, the government has, and, you know, the, the media and everybody else combined has successfully scared the American public to death. And um, they figure, I guess, all these people, to the extent that they co coordinate these things, or they're all part of a culture, that people will turn to the same old, you know, daddies and mommies uh, for help. And yet they have turned in another direction, according to what you're writing. Well, that's right. I mean, if you look at it objectively, you're more likely to die slipping in a bathtub than from a terrorist attack. And if you're in the demographic we're talking about, say, uh, 45 to 55 year old uh, white working class males, uh, you're definitely more likely to uh, to die from, say, uh, OxyContin or Vicodin overdoses. Uh, this is the one demographic in our country whose death rate has actually increased in the last 10 years, and yet it's terrorism they're afraid of, not the sort of social and economic system that has put them in this mess. And uh, why does Trump appeal to them? Because the whole message of the war on terror, as it is with militarism uh, in general, is to be afraid, and it's also to appeal to people's authoritarian instincts. Mm. And now Donald Trump, he doesn't even know what the nuclear triad is the blanket name for the biggest weapons in our arsenal. Uh, in Vietnam, he was a draft avoider. He doesn't know a thing about the military. He doesn't have any clue. But he has one thing. He has a strong authoritarian leader personality. Mm -hmm. And people with authoritarian follower instincts will attach themselves almost masochistically, to a, a Fuhrer figure like that. And we've seen this. It's happened before in history, and it's yeah. happening now. Um, and you refer to the national security state, or people refer to it as the corporate police state or the national security state. Um, but you hear in your article, you say the national security state, which is a subset of the corporate state, is that really the same as Eisenhower's uh, original military-industrial complex that he warned everybody about? Well, uh, what we see at the Pentagon and the uh, National Security Agency and so forth is the, the military-industrial complex he talked about, but my conception of the deep state is simply something larger that encompasses more things 
not only that, uh, but there's Wall Street, uh, which is uh, essentially uh, the prop behind all this, because it's sort of the source of all the money. And our foreign policy, for instance, is very much dedicated uh, to keeping the cash flowing for Wall Street investments. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at all our trade agreements for the last 25 years, there is an implicit deal to countries, which is you submit to our foreign and national security policies, go along with us, essentially as client states, and we will give you privileged access to our markets. Mm-hmm. So in other words, what Wall Street the military-industrial complex are saying is we will sacrifice our manufacturing jobs and the people who work at those for higher principles. In other words, uh, basing rights for the Pentagon, uh, investment rights overseas hmm. for Wall Street. Other priorities, rather than use the word principle, maybe. But but one essential point you make in this article here is uh, uh, that uh, this this national security state, this, this sort of very uh, well-oiled, long-running, convenient uh, power state that runs everything, they don't want Trump. And there's plenty of evidence, as you see in the news, why do they why, why is it they don't want Trump? Is it that he's just not malleable and manageable? I think that's that's mainly it. He hasn't assimilated the values of a kind of nonpartisan technocrat mm-hmm. the way uh, Obama has or Clinton has done mm-hmm. so effectively. Um, and. He's something, if you look at his whole uh, life, it's, it's just not something you can control. Um, nevertheless, um, as for the Republican Party, we've been seeing all this about how they uh, think that he is precisely what our founding fathers uh, warned against and tried to construct uh, separation of powers against. But I think at the end of the day, if he is nominated, uh, most of the, the party apparatchiks, the pundit class, the elected officials, they'll go along with him. Well, they're already, you can see that a lot of them are already drifting towards him, you know, Newt Gingrich and um, all the rest of them. Uh, it would be interesting to see if it split the Republican Party. It wouldn't be such a bad idea, but... Still, it's a larger issue we're talking about. As you mentioned with Obama, it's not just uh, not just the Republicans or the Democrats. It's really uh, a sort of permanent undergovernment that's there all the time, and it includes uh, Republicans and Democrats. Also, obviously, includes Clinton. I mean, you mentioned um, anybody take a good look at John Brennan and Obama. You could see that. You know. Oh, yeah, definitely, he's an example. He's a, was a CIA official in the Bush administration. Uh, there was some question about his advocacy for torture when uh, Obama moved to nominate him as CIA director in 2009. He withdrew Brennan's nomination, uh, stuck him in a non-confirmable post, 
at the National Security Agency. When all that blew over, he then uh, renominated him and got him um, into position as CIA director. Oddly, that is precisely parallel to the way George H.W. Bush did with Robert Gates, who was at the CIA under Reagan mm-hmm. and was uh, in Iran-Contra up to his eyeballs. Um, he was nominated at the end of the uh, Reagan administration, uh, didn't make it. George H.W. Bush, incoming, stuck him in the National Security Council as deputy director. Uh, and then at the propitious moment, he uh, nominated him for CIA director. So <clears throat> all these people have this uh, this set government that they and they usually have their uh, you know I, you're virtually referring to them as pet pre-programmed candidates and I think you might agree that uh, that Hillary Clinton is one uh, and then we it certainly get, seems to be yeah we get to choose the lesser of two evils but what they didn't count on. Uh, was, I don't know why they wouldn't, but they didn't count on um, a sort of fascist personality coming up. And what they really didn't count on is that the great um, suckers out there, the great mass of suckers uh, who just go along and vote for whoever the lesser two evils and think it's a, think it's a distinction. Um, and, of course, there are distinctions. I mean, I can't be so blanket about that. But um, they got sick of all this stuff. They got sick of the same old candidates because they finally can see that it doesn't really matter who they vote if one seems to be better than the other or is in a different party, that their plight gets worse. And so they've um, they've gone for a little fascism. And um, uh, there's two things that you mention in here. And there's one phrase that people use all the time called low information voters. And then what you referred to earlier is uh, some work by a Canadian psychologist named Robert Altemeyer and the authoritarian personality. Between low-information voters and authoritarian personalities, um, you can get somebody like Trump being successful, right? That is absolutely true. And to um, complete the, the point I made before, that, or that you asked the question about the deep state isn't really a, uh, thrilled with Trump, partly it's a question of optics. They've essentially run a kind of corporate oligarchy with a facade of democratic process. And we present ourselves to the world as the world's greatest democracy. Now, that kind of goes down the tubes. The mask comes off if someone like Donald Trump, who's openly authoritarian, is elected. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the people who pull the wires can't pull the wires in secret anymore because it's right out in the open. Well, <clears throat> you're, uh, you're betting 50-50 we wind up with fascism in the next couple of years. Um, part, of, part of what this, um, what the national security uh, state uh, uh, does is hook up with something you call the media entertainment complex. Um, can you explain what you, what you mean by that? Well, during the Reagan administration, when all these consolidations started, uh, we probably had 40 to 60 uh, media corporations in this country. Now it's come down basically for the main ones, down to about half a dozen. Uh, And 
they are the ones who decide what we see. And having complex stories about Wall, what Wall Street did uh, or what our foreign policy achieves or does not achieve, as opposed to what State Department spokesmen say, um, that's a long, complex story, requires a lot of investigative journalism, doesn't sell cornflakes, mm-hmm. and it's also not really in their corporate interest. Right, right. So, um, you know, you get Rush Limbaugh, Fox News, uh, all the rest of it, uh, and they build all this stuff up. I think even they are a little and bit... And don't just talk about Fox. I mean, that's the favorite whipping boy, and deservedly so, mm-hmm. of people on the progressive side. But uh, Les Moonves uh, of CBS was bragging that, well, Trump isn't all that good for the, the country, but he's great for CBS. Yeah, there you go. Um, and because he's a spectacle, he's sort of Jerry Springer on steroids, mm. and they sort of uncritically cover his antics, and it brings in revenue. For everybody. And advertising revenue. For everybody, for as MSNBC. Well as the fact that these are people, people like Les Moonves, they love Citizens United because an unchecked flow of dark money buying issue advertising on television, <laughs> uh, you know, really sends their stock up. Yeah, yeah. So uh, along with all this is uh, to maintain this feeling of terror in the country so that the people uh, will just be scared to death and go along with whoever it is that they tell should they should be going along with or whatever policy. You have to have a kind of nonstop militarism, too, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, hence, we have this ridiculous spectacle of the NFL, uh, which gets uh, 10 a billion dollars annually a year uh, revenue, approximately. Uh, very well to do, partly from a kind of stadium socialism where the teams are uh, uh, getting uh, stadiums built by the municipalities they're in based on, on uh, essentially extortion. Um, they receive money from the taxpayer via the Pentagon to have all those rather saccharine uh, and treacly uh, patriotic performances at halftime. Mm. And in the beginning, too. I mean, it's to not keep, just... Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, just to keep know. people reminded of, of uh, the military. Yeah, I get sick to death of seeing this. I, you know, sometimes I watch hockey. I don't know if this happens. Uh, I don't see it happening with baseball so much, uh, except God bless America all over the place and everybody standing up in the stands uh, with the tears in their eyes and their hands over their hearts. But, uh, you know, this, this, the jets flying over the, the, the flag at the football stadium that's, you know, uh, 50 yards by 20 yards. Uh, and the same thing happens with the National Hockey League. The people coming out, you know, uh, decorated veterans, veterans from other wars, you know, special services, men, women, medals. It really is very, to me, it's, uh, it is uh, repellent, but it also is scary because, again, as you write in your article, uh, if you just tuned in, we're listening to Mike Lofgren, and uh, he has an article um, 
that appeared in um, Truth Out a couple of weeks ago called Blowback. Donald Trump is the price we pay for the war on terror. And he has a, a recent book uh, called The Deep State, The Fall of the Constitution and the Rise of a Shadow Government. All this stuff serves uh, the same interests. You're constantly reminded how, uh, and the advertising on TV for the Army and the Navy and the Air Force and um, it, it just it just overwhelms you all the time. And if you're young and impressionable, or even if you're not young and you're impressionable, all this stuff gets into your head. What they just don't count on is somebody, when they scare everybody to death, is uh, bringing out the low-information voters, uh, the well-trained people who believe in the military and its glory and in the Americans' freedoms and all this stuff. What they don't count on is somebody like Trump coming along. How could they be... How could they not see something like that coming or were they were just too interested in wars and money? Sorry, that's not much of a question, but... Well, these people aren't necessarily far-seeing uh, uh, philosophers. Hmm. Uh, they don't really understand that. They're mainly about the short-term bottom line. What keeps the cash flow to the Pentagon? What keeps uh, the cash flow to Wall Street and places like that? Uh, so it's it's no surprise that they didn't see this coming. Although if if you sort of look at the history of the 20th century, uh, what happens when countries um, go down the road of oligarchy, uh, long term unemployment, uh, and, and social tensions? Well, if you're not lucky enough to have a Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, you might get a Mussolini. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I don't think we have a Franklin Roosevelt right now. Uh, so it, one thing you mentioned, too, and a lot of people uh, use these phrases or these words interchangeably, is uh, the concept of, um, of fascism and populism. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? Well, really, populism is a kind of ideology-neutral thing um, it's a kind of way you appeal to the common people, the rhetoric you use and the themes you use, but now it seems to have applied itself mainly to uh, right-wing movements uh, because they appeal to the, the common man who's been forgotten, and they have the, the rhetoric down pat on how to say you're being screwed by shadowy elites mm -hmm. uh, and that we will help you. Of course, once they get into power, they'll smash unions, maybe make them illegal, and enthrone the corporations. But that's a little detail that comes later. Mm -hmm. um, you don't see much left populism. You've, you've finally started to see it with Bernie Sanders, because the Democratic Leadership Council, the new Democrats, ever since the late 1980s, they've been really anxious uh, to tamp down on that. Mm -hmm. That does not fit with their agenda. Well, he's well. People, you know, equate the two of them all the time. I think unfairly, and they say that he is the Democrats' version of somebody who got out of control. But it's nothing like with Trump. No, I mean ideologically, they're they're holds apart. They're, they're nothing similar. Uh, he does not appeal to the sort of violent personality 
and and authoritarian personality that Trump appeals to. The, the only parallel I would say is they're both rebels in terms of their stance versus the party they're running in, and also their business model uh, for campaigning insofar as Trump, by his own modest self-estimation, is richer than God. He doesn't need the money. Mm-hmm. Plus, he's getting free media anyway from people like Les Moonves, so he doesn't need to spend the money. And to a certain person, that's appealing because it means he doesn't have to make promises to fat cats. Bernie Sanders, for his part, uh, gets more than a million people out there making small donations of, I think it's less than $30 each, uh, enough that he can stay competitive with Hillary Clinton, who's the most formidable fundraiser in history. So in that sense, their business models uh, are sort of uh, interesting in that they've both figured out ways to beat the system. Mm-hmm. Ideologically, of course, you're correct. They're not the same, and they're you know you can't say because one's extreme, the other's an extremist. Well, we got to move on. We have another guest. I, I really appreciate your coming on and talking about this. Is there a place where people can go to uh, to read other articles by you or a website? Uh, there are several on uh, truthout.org. Mm-hmm. And also on consortiumnews.org, oh, sure. Robert which Perry. is a yeah. website by Robert Perry, an excellent investigative journalist. Uh, and again, my book, The Deep State, The Fall of the Constitution and the Rise of a Shadow Government, available at your independent bookseller or Amazon if you bust. Okay. <laughs> Mike Lofgren, <laughs> L-O-F-G-R-E-N. Thank you very much. Thank you. Enjoyed being here. Okay. We're going to take, this is Mike Fader on, with The Turning Point. We're going to take a just very brief break and move on to our next guest this morning. Okay, <clears throat> we're back here, and um, we have another guest with us. Uh, recently, there was an article in the uh, in the New York Times. It's about uh, a week ago, and uh, the first paragraph said, "On Super Tuesday, Dale, we have a little bit of static there. Is there? Do you hear that? No. Okay. On Super Tuesday, Dale Clark voted for a local Republican who claimed on social media." This is the local Republican who was voted for, that President Obama had worked as a gay prostitute in his youth, that the United States should ban Islam, that the Democratic Party had John F. Kennedy killed, and that the United Nations had hatched a plot to depopulate the world. And uh, they're referring to a woman named Mary Lou Bruner, who is a former kindergarten teacher running for a seat on the State Board of Education. And to tell, to talk more about this and what this all means and who she is and what the larger issues are, we have with us Dan Quinn, who is um, 
with the Texas Freedom Network. And uh, can you, uh, first of all, can you uh, tell me a little bit about your uh, your background and your bio, you know, your biography? Sure. Hi, Mike. Uh, yeah, I'm the communications director at the Texas Freedom Network. Uh, before I came to TFN, I worked in educational publishing, uh, editing uh, social studies textbooks, actually, for mm. one of the major publishers. And before that, I was a political uh, columnist and um, uh, journalist for uh, newspapers in Texas. Um, TFN is, uh, was founded in 1995 by Cecile Richards, uh, Governor Ann Richards' um, daughter. And uh, she is now, of course, the head of Planned Parenthood of Federation of America. Our goal here, our mission here, is essentially to, to be a counter to the religious right in, in the state, which began a concerted effort to take over the halls of government in Texas probably in the late 80s and essentially had succeeded uh, in many ways by the mid-1990s of taking over the Republican Party and um, over time also the State Board of Education. Now, um, there are various questions I wanted to ask you about all this, but uh, let's sort of proceed the way the uh, the article goes. And 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 who who is Mary Lou Bruner specifically? So she is a retired teacher from uh, a small town in East Texas. East Texas is a largely rural part of the state. Um, there are cities there, of course, but generally mid-sized cities of a hundred thousand or less, uh, mostly small towns. Um, it used to be a heavily democratic part of the state, uh, culturally, overt, culturally though very conservative, so in the shift in, in Texas it became increasingly Republican mm-hmm. and is now sort of a Tea Party hotbed. Uh, Mary Lou Bruner uh, got on our radar a few years back. She testified before the State Board of Education at a hearing on um, there was a resolution at the state board claiming that history textbooks are pro-Muslim and anti-Christian and anti-American, which is, of course, crazy. Uh, and she testified in favor of that resolution and insisted that Middle Easterners are buying up all the textbook companies so that they can indoctrinate American school children into Islam. Um, yeah, that kind of stuff. So uh, she's she's been around for a while, but uh, she's largely been on on the outside, and now she wants to be on the inside. Now, um, she, uh, when you mentioned, um, first of all, I, you know, uh, as far as the Texas Freedom Network goes, and, uh, you know, the idea of having um, a more objective look at things and not, you know, something that's um, skewed over towards uh, the religious right. Um, what about yourself? I mean, do you come from a religious background? Or are you religious at all? Yeah, I was raised Catholic, mm-hmm. um, an altar boy, um, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, still, am, and religious myself, uh, still a believer, uh, although I'm no longer Roman Catholic, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, faith remains a very important part of my life. Um, because I'm sure the Texas Freedom Network gets attacked by people like Mary Lou and her crowd, right? Oh, right. Well, we have clergy on our board, um, Jewish and Christian clergy on our board. We work with a variety of uh, people of faith from all over the state. We work with a project called uh, that we created, the Texas Faith Network, which includes six or 700 progressive clergy from across Texas. Uh, you're right. We're attacked constantly as being anti-Christian and anti-religious in general. Um, it's just it's ridiculous, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's part of the part of the course. So um, <clears throat> she comes from a, uh, a certain part of Texas, which is extremely conservative and uh, probably uh, very fundamentalist Christian, as you mentioned. Um, 
it's it's interesting. Well, I don't know. I'm not Christian, so it's not for me to judge. But all, so many people who self-identify as Christians and attack other people as being unchristian. Uh, I remember George Bush was always like that. You know that he <clears throat> he can identify himself as a Christian. Uh, yet the stands that these people take on things, just from my reading of the Gospels, <laughs> don't, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's, uh, is it me for, for me to say they don't seem very Christian to me? You know. Yeah, I think the Reverend Jim Wallace makes arguments similar to that. You know, if you're really a Christian today, how can you not care about the least of those among us? Mm-hmm. And the policies that uh, the religious right often promote um, are... Uh, sort of antithetical to that. Um, the idea that people don't need health insurance, uh, the, the idea that uh, economic equality is is not an important uh, moral principle as well as a political and economic principle. Uh, in many ways, the religious right has been sort of a co-co-optation here. The Republican business establishment used religious writers to build their support among cultural conservatives, and then the religious right, of course, helped capture control of the Republican Party to push their own agenda as well. Of course, we're, now we're starting to see a crack-up uh, over there, but regardless, it's been this long battle within the party itself about who controls whom, but the result's ultimately the same. Policies that hurt a lot of Americans on down the way. Mm. So <clears throat> she got a lot of votes in the primary. She's in a runoff yeah. now, right? But she got a yeah. lot of votes. Uh, and at one point uh, in the article here, um, she herself said that she's just merely speaking for, you know, uh, the majority of people in the uh, counties that she's running from. And she got something like 220,000 votes, a lot of votes, and got the lead amount of votes and now is in a runoff uh for the uh for the candidate uh you right. know to run to be ultimately on the Texas Board of Education um so what about that i mean is she is is she i, I mean people vote they go out and vote so they're choosing sure. somebody they they prefer right well i think that's probably true among those who did vote keep in mind that statewide the republican turnout in the march 1st primary was about 14% oh she captured and if that was also the case in her district, around 14%, she captured about 7% then of the turnout in the state. Mm-hmm. So people in Texas don't vote very much, frankly. And in primaries, it's even less likely that they'll vote. The ones who do vote are the hardcore true believers, the tea evangelicals, we call them, Tea Party activists, uh, who align themselves with social conservative causes as well. Um, also keep in mind that State Board of Education districts, there are 15 across the state. They're single-member districts. Each district, because there's just 15, is more than twice the size of a congressional district population-wise. And geography, I mean, they're huge. So it takes a lot of money for a candidate to get known. Well, they don't have a lot of money in state board races. Uh, She raised about three or $4,000, which is not going to go anywhere in in a district that huge. So what typically happens is uh, Tea Party and religious right groups have extensive email lists. She got a lot of endorsements from prominent Tea Party leaders in in that part of the state, from religious right groups like Texas Eagle Forum. Um, They use those lists, and Tea Party groups have uh, candidate forums in small towns all all over the district to promote their particular candidate. And when you don't have a high turnout to begin with, uh, you don't need a whole lot of votes 
to win a particular primary, a whole lot of votes relative to the number of voters actually or eligible voters in the district. So yes, she did, she may have gotten a couple hundred thousand votes, but there are a lot more votes than that or potential votes than that in her district. Hmm. Having said that, it's certainly clear this is a very conservative part of the state. They do not like Barack Obama in large part. It's a very Republican part of the state. And uh, the kinds of things that she said, um, particularly about the president, are just absolutely outrageous. But, you know, look at the New York Times article. A lot of the people they talked to didn't even know that she said that stuff. So that's, just, that's exactly what I was just going to ask you. Uh, let me quote a little bit from the article. On her Facebook page, um, <clears throat> Mrs. Br- Ms. Bruner called Mr. Obama Ahab the Arab and wrote that he hates all white people and all wealthy people because to him wealthy means white. And although she condemned the KKK in one posting, she wrote positively of its roots, and that's a complicated issue. Uh, Of Mr. Obama's youth, she wrote, I heard from a reliable source, whatever that means anymore, that, that Obama was a male prostitute for a while while he lived in New York with his male partner. How do you think he paid for his drugs? All this stuff. Now, they couldn't, were they aware of this, all these organizations and groups that were backing her? You know, I suspect that some of them, uh, some of the groups were aware of that kind of stuff, uh, but who knows? Uh, I think they were largely focused on the fact that she's socially conservative, she's anti-Muslim, she's, you know, she self-proclaimed uh, biases in favor of Christianity. Um, you know, she said that before the State Board of Education. All that's good enough for them. Oh, and she hates Common Core. She thinks Common Core is the road to Nazism in America. Mm-hmm. And she means that, really the road to Nazism. And the hard right in Texas, maybe the hard right across the country, they despise Common Core. And they do think it is the end of, of education in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and for all kinds of bizarre reasons. I mean, there are a lot of reasons to like or dislike Common Core, but it is not the road to Nazism, for heaven's sake. And it, uh, um, but uh, your your group, the Texas Freedom Network, you you retained a lot of these pe- Facebook page uh, postings that, after they were taken down, right? I mean, they're not on her Facebook page anymore. We did. Uh, we archived a lot of them. We've been uh, we our original blog post was the one that sort of launched a lot of the stories that have been written about this since then, because a lot of people didn't know uh, that she believed that. Uh, or she had written those kinds of things. We've we've since uh, posted more of of her uh, nonsense. Uh, you know, she thinks that the Alamo has been taken over by the United Nations because it's now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Hmm. Uh, she thinks that the three or four stories she's read about um, the instances of cobra snakes somehow, uh, you know, getting into the news means that they're somehow coming across the border with the illegal aliens or something. Um, it, it's just it's the kinds of stuff that she pushes are just sort of lunatic fringe things. Um, she even goes after Republicans. I mean, she's criticized our land commissioner George P. Bush, uh, Republican, mm-hmm. uh, because the Alamo is becoming a, a World Heritage site, and claims that he's helping orchestrate the takeover of this this Texas shrine by the United Nations. I mean, it's just kook, kook stuff. Well. Um... Now, lest people think we're just talking about something that occurs in the state of Texas, maybe we could, uh, you could tell me about the state, the Texas State Board of Education, yeah. what their functions and responsibilities sure. are. And, but why is it after that, you, after you explain it, why is it that uh, people should be 
uh, particularly uh, concerned all over the country with what happens in the Texas Board of Education. I think people may not understand that. Yeah, there's a reason the New York Times and the Washington Post have written about this. Um, the State Board of Education in Texas uh, has two primary educational functions. One is to set curriculum standards for the more than 5 million kids around the state. Those, de- those determine essentially what public schools are going to teach kids. Then publishers have to write textbooks to meet those standards. And then the State Board adopts textbooks, you know, reviews them, makes sure they cover those standards, they're free of factual errors, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Um, publishers, because Texas is the second largest state in the country and the largest state in the country to adopt textbooks in a centralized adoption, K all the way to 12, um, it's such a huge market here that publishers tend to write their textbooks to meet the standards in Texas. And then they do as little rewriting as they can get away with and then sell those same textbooks to schools across the country. Traditionally, that's generally what happened. With Common Core, that may change a little bit uh, with the advent of you know better technologies here, so that it's less expensive for publishers to you know, edit textbooks or versions of the textbooks for elsewhere. Maybe that will change a little bit, but it is still true that Texas has a very large influence over what school textbooks are going to say in states around the country. I'd like to say, unlike Vegas, what happens in Texas doesn't stay in Texas when it comes to textbooks. <laughs> um, so, for instance, I mean, there was a time when they were approving textbooks or causing textbooks to be edited or written in a certain way that were um, fairly conservative, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, we just adopted, the State Board just adopted new social studies textbooks, for example, that teach students, and this is outrageous, we you know, raised the alarms on this, too, but it still got through, that Moses uh, was a primary influence on the writing of the Constitution, that the roots of Western democracy can be found in uh, the Old Testament. Uh, That kind of stuff is being taught in Texas public schools now. Mm. Mm. And those textbooks are going to be going into schools across the country. Well, I mean, but um, has it? But I've been reading, according to the Times and a couple of other places, that the uh, that the Texas uh, Board of Education has, uh, over the last what few years or several years, has shifted a little bit away from this conservative um, centrality. Yeah. yeah. Social conservatives began a concerted effort to take over the state board in the early 90s. By the 2006 election, they had uh, captured effective control. They had seven of the 15 seats. All they needed was to swing one Republican to win on a number of votes, and they typically did. The governor, Governor Barry, uh, uh, he appointed three biblical creationists in a row to serve as chair of the board. Mm. We're on our fourth now. Um, it's it's an astonishing um string of success for them, but in, uh, but they sort of overreached. Uh, they adopted curriculum standards in social studies and science in 2008 and 2009 and 10 that were um, really problematic in a lot of ways. Even conservative organizations like the Thomas B. Fordham Institute criticized the standards here as, as overtly politicized. Uh, I think there was some backlash. Uh, the creationist former chair of the board, Don McElroy, who represented the district that we're now talking about that Mary Lou Bruner is running in. He lost a race in the Republican primary to a moderate Republican, uh, Thomas Ratliff. Mr. Ratliff has decided not to run for re-election this time. He was, he's been there for, he'll be, uh, been there for six years by the end of 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, three other, um, 
right-wing board members either lost re-election or chose not to run for re-election. And so the board did move uh, closer to the center. It's still pretty conservative. It's 10 Republicans and 5 Democrats, although not all of the Republicans vote uh, in lockstep with the creationist bloc. Um, but they have moved closer to the center. So this would be the first sort of uh, big move back toward the right if Mary Lou Brunner were able to win her runoff in May. Well, what's your, what's your, I mean, there are other, uh, according to the article in the Times, there are other superintendents, for instance, of East Texas school districts that are critical of her. In fact, uh, very critical, right? Yeah, there are, and uh, the, her opponent in the runoff is the head of the school board in Lufkin, which is a mid-sized city in East Texas. He's well-respected there, uh, certainly conservative himself, but not of the Mary Lou Bruner type. Um, but who knows? She had more than 48% of the vote in the primary. He had 31%. Uh, turnout will probably be even lower in the runoff, which means that the really hardcore fanatics who go to vote will have an even bigger voice in the runoff than they did before. It's also possible that some of the attention that she's gotten over the last few weeks will uh, turn some people off. And um, certainly you know, many of the people that New York Times reporter talked to seem to not be phased by it. But who knows? Maybe there will be others who will say, ooh, maybe we need to rethink this, especially since there is another conservative in the race after all. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see. But if she does win the runoff, uh, the state board districts in Texas are heavily gerrymandered. Uh, I mean, there are ten Republicans and five Democrats on the board for a reason. The, the districts are drawn so that there are ten strong Republican districts, of which that one is one, mm-hmm. uh, and five strong Democratic districts. And um, there is a Democrat in the November election in that race. Uh, with I, I don't want to discourage her or supporters, but it's a really you know, steep hill to climb in that mm-hmm. district if you're not a Republican. So uh, should people, uh, parents and grandparents all over the country, should they be concerned about what their kids are reading in social studies and other kinds of textbooks? If I were a parent uh, outside of Texas, I would not be ignoring this. The first thing I would do is find out what textbooks are in my child's classroom, and I would get a hold of them, and I would look through and find out for myself what's being taught. Uh, I would talk to the school district and find out when did you buy these textbooks. And uh, um, if they were very recent, uh, I would definitely look through and make sure, you know, check what they write about the Constitution. Check what they write in world history textbooks about the roots of democracy. If you find what I talked about earlier in there, then you know you've got the Texas textbooks. Hmm. Um, All right. It's important that people actually get involved at the local level and find out what's going on in their kids' schools. The days when we could assume that things were going to be fine there because relatively sane, responsible people were going to be making decisions about what's going into classrooms, uh, those are over. Yeah, well, the, um, the days when any relatively sane people are are <laughs> running for national office or running the military, they're, they're all over. So we, have, we, we do have to pay close attention. Uh, uh, we only have a couple of minutes left. Uh, we're, you're listening to Dan Quinn, who is the communications director for the Texas Freedom Network. That's What would be the website then? Our website is uh, tfn.org. TFN is in Texas Freedom Network. Or you T- can follow us on our blog at tfninsider.org. Okay. And um, give me just briefly a couple of the other stories that you're covering right now, and um, that's about all the time we might have. Sure. 
Well, we are concerned about uh, the Supreme Court case on abortion. Uh, the law in Texas uh, that was passed a few years back uh, is causing a number of uh, abortion clinics in the state to close, uh, more than half. We could have less than 10 uh, open if the Supreme Court doesn't overturn this decision. It's uh, the, the law that was passed here imposes a lot of medically unnecessary burdens mm-hmm. on, dist- on uh, clinics. They have to be ambulatory surgical centers. Uh, the uh, physicians there have to have admitting privileges at local hospitals. All of that's very difficult to get for a lot of political reasons. Uh, but also, it's a, just entirely unnecessary. Um, and the entire purpose of that law was to close clinics, and they succeeded in doing that. So we're very heavily focused on that right now. And something like that uh, could be, uh, I mean, if the Supreme Court uh, uh, let this uh, Court of Appeals decision alone and let it be, then it could have a precedent-setting uh, effect. Yeah, I mean, I mean to, to borrow the word that's used by one of our presidential candidates, it's huge. I mean, this could be a, this is a big, big, big deal. Okay. The 1973 decision Roe v. Wade established the right to get an abortion. It, it is not a right if it is so difficult and even impossible to access abortion right. services. And that's what we're talking about here. Okay, that's, uh, uh, well, I'm just, my engineer is telling me we only got about a minute left. So, Dan Quinn, thanks for coming on. People should know about this. It's, uh, be, every, and this is the, one of the strangest things, uh, stranger things about American uh, education is that one state's board of education uh, has so much influence on textbooks that they these textbooks can be um, can be uh, adopted by various other states in the country too. So it's something we all need to follow. TFN.org, right? Yes, that's right. Okay, thanks so much, Dan. Thanks, Mike. Take care. You too. Okay, that's it for uh, today, and uh, we'll be back next week. If you want to get in touch with me uh, or see other things that are on my website, I have a blog, too, and uh, there are various things up there. It's uh, go to the Fader Files, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com, and you can contact me that way, and you can see some of the other blog uh, articles I've written and comment on them. Thanks very much.
Keep the devil 